Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Hello again, I'm Chuck Coughlin, setting the record straight on Breadbox Media. I entitled this podcast, What Are We to Do With This Embarrassing Beauty? This supposedly, in my imagination, this was spoken by a modern secularist, part of the intellectual elite, which have rejected Christianity. The post-Christian West, it's called. And what is this embarrassing beauty? Well, here's a small piece of it. It's from the Overture to Parsifal a very Catholic piece of music. The embarrassment is that the greatest music ever written was achieved in Catholicdom in the West. Nothing else in all the millennia of music everywhere else has even come close to it. To begin with, the whole idea of the diatonic scales, which enable a composer to achieve drama, to achieve almost a literary meaning within music. Rather than seeming to stand still, there's a sense of motion moving from chaos to order, from tension to relaxation. Musical notation, all music theory... Harmony itself is an invention of the Catholic world. Practically all the great composers that whose names we know are Catholic and very deeply inspired by their Catholicism. The music of the West actually towered above any other music for centuries. But then we entered the last three-fourths or half of the 20th century 
When the pervasive philosophy of the time became a secular rationalism, a post-Christian West, when things sort of fell apart into an atonal 12-row classical music that was pushed on us for decades, but it's gone now, abandoned, because nobody wants to listen to it, never did. It's dry and intellectual and forgotten. Most particularly, it was of the brain and not of the soul and spirit. So what am I doing today? I'm following up on last week's podcast, in which I talked about this wonderful new book. The title is How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Art. It's by Elizabeth Lev, and I highly recommend it. But the one art this book could not do justice to, of course, is music. I want to talk about music. It touches on music, this book. I'm going to concentrate on one rather beautiful and lengthy piece of music, a great masterpiece, Richard Wagner's greatest opera, Parsifal, his last opera. The problem with this opera for the modern mind is that it's Catholic, very Catholic, and is full of sacred inspiration. The dramatic music of Parsifal moves in human ways, betraying the human pilgrimage of our perilous adventures as we struggle against the chaos of our fallen nature, and through grace are drawn back again into order, into the Logos. This is a subject covered in great depth by E. Michael Jones, and listen to his YouTube on music, and he goes very deeply into this subject. He's not talking about Parsifal in particular, though. I was especially struck by the modern elitist, rationalist attitude, atheist attitude, actually. Even sarcasm about the subject of Wagner's opera. It seems to characterize almost all the current productions of Parsifal that one can see on YouTube. There's plenty of these. Look at them. When directors and set designers and costume designers try to drain the very meaning out of the opera, especially the sacred meaning, presenting the music, but not fulfilling the visual image that Wagner intended and extensively described in the stage directions. This modern sardonic attitude of the elite toward religion, and especially toward Catholicism, seems fully exemplified in a New Yorker essay called Parsing Parsifal by Richard Brody, who attended the performance recently at the Metropolitan Opera. Let me read a few bits of that and comment on it, and you will see what I mean. He starts out saying, Circumstances caused the friend who joined me last Friday night at the Metropolitan Opera for the season's final performance of the new production of Parsifal to arrive late, and somehow this seemed appropriate. It struck me that late coming is the drama's very subject and source. The discomfort with the modern, convivial, and compromised Christianity that doesn't share the existential devotion of its first disciples. I want to comment that that is a very cutting description of modern Christianity. Modern, convivial, and compromised. He goes on. Richard Wagner suddenly appeared to me as a coincidental comrade of Kierkegaard, a music philosopher of a nostalgic and impossible religious restoration. So he thinks that restoring Christianity is now impossible. The performance, with intermissions, took six hours. Brady writes, The state of physical exhaustion that the performance induced is in stark contrast to the story it tells. Wagner, of course, wrote the text as well as the music. The key backstory to Parsifal is the illicit night of love between King Amfortas, the head of a band of monastic knights, 
and protectors of the Holy Grail, and Kundri, a shape-shifting sorceress. While lying in her arm, his spear, the holy lance, which pierced the crucified Christ, is stolen by the evil magician Klingzor, who then stabs him with it. The wound has never healed, both straining him physically and signifying his moral failings. And it leaves Amfortas a weakened ruler, unable to lead the Brotherhood, which as a result is threatened with a collapse from within and is menaced from without. I should like to comment that Parsifal is the solution to all this. But when he first appears, he's a fool, an innocent fool, naive and knows nothing. That's important to know. Richard Brody continues, I figured it would be best to see what the Supreme Critic, the one-time friend and ultimate enemy of Wagner, Nietzsche, had to say. The atheist Nietzsche. And unsurprisingly, he said it all first and incommensurably better. Quote from Nietzsche, how can we test this content, this eternal content? The chemist replies, translate Wagner into reality, into the modern, and let us even be crueler, into the bourgeois. Nothing is more entertaining. Nothing to be recommended more highly for walks than retelling Wagner in a more youthful proportions. For example, Parsifal, as a candidate for a theological degree, with secondary school education, the latter being indispensable, for pure foolishness. Well, friends, it looks like Nietzsche was prophetic. These productions do make fun of the opera. Brody writes that this is what amazed me about Parsifal. The music is voluptuous and swooning-inducing, with catharitic chord resolutions on the order of the famous orgasmic one in Tristan and Isolde, that don't so much lift one out of one's seats as bury one deep in the abyss of one's own inner ecstasy. Yet the intimate eroticism of the music is contradicted as if point by point by the paranoid sex panic plot. My reaction to that is this. The Richard Brody evidently cannot see that sexual passion is treasured within the true Catholic ethic as a holy place, a sacred place, within marriage. The Catholic ethic is not a rejection of earthly things, but an embrace of them. It's a union of heaven and earth. This is the very deep meaning and the example of the incarnation of Christ as a human being. Not that heaven came down, but that earth was carried up like a child in his arms. Yes, mankind has an earthly nature, and that sexual passion is sacred and valued within the Catholic ethic, as long as it's informed by the Logos, by order, balanced in its place. If Brody ever knew that, he's forgotten it. Evidently, a great many other people have. Brody goes on. Wagner's Christianity is a grim cult of chastity, obedience, order, and war. A Spartan vision of a master race of true believers. A death cult that gains its legitimacy from its possession of relics. A possession that forces them into an ironclad submissiveness. Yet even as his horatory drama conjured a supposedly holy simplicity of self-abjuring dedication, his musical mind drove forward toward an astonishing, bewildering, vast entangling complexity. Wagner's musical creation is uneasily, passionately physical. Passages in the nubile young women's chorus seem as dense as Schoenberg, and the overall chromatic weave 
is simultaneously a riot of notes brought together in a majestic cathedral-like grandeur of order. So Brody does recognize the order that is in the music, resolving the chaos. Brody is not allowing for man's fallen nature, his dual nature. Humans are angel beasts, both profane and sacred at the same time. But under the influence of the Logos, balanced. There are, of course, other crucial elements of Nietzsche's critique. His repudiation of the, quote, holy fool is anti-rational and anti-scientific. His neo-pagan repudiation of Christianity and his rejection of Wagner's notion of theater as the supreme art. The latter looks ahead to an age in which dramatic spectacle in the event movies and television will become the cornerstone of cultural identity. But you may ask just how sacred is this opera? Well, let me assure you that both music and words are united in a very, very Catholic story. And yes, there is a tension in the music between the profane and the sacred. The same tension that is in us all. Let me give you a quick synopsis. The plot is set in Spain. And the eldest knight of the Holy Grail, Grenamots, is leading the morning prayers for some of the squires. Other knights are preparing their king, Amfortas, who is incurably wounded by the Holy Spirit, which he guards, is taken to take a bath in the Holy Lake, which gives him some relief. A woman named Kundri, the Holy Grail's messenger, comes carrying with her a potion that will help ease the king's pain. As she does, King Amfortas tells a prophecy that was once told to him about the appearance of a holy but innocent fool who will resolve their problems. King Omfortest acquired the holy relics, which is the holy grail, the cup from which Jesus Christ drank during the Last Supper, and the holy spear, the weapon that pierced the side of Jesus Christ, while he was nailed to the cross. These were given to Omfortest's father, Titrael. When Omfortest took to the throne, he created a group of knights, to guard and protect these sacred relics. The Knights of the Holy Grail. There was a man named Klingsor who wanted to be a Knight of the Holy Grail, but he was unable to successfully pass on Fortas tests of requirements. In revenge, he constructed a castle nearby and enchanted it with magic and alluring women to trap and ensnare the Knights of the Holy Grail. Amfortas had taken a group of his knights to Klingsor's castle to defeat him, but they all fell under Klingsor's spell. Kundri was there in the guise of an incredibly beautiful woman, and she deceived him into giving her the Holy Spear. Klingsor took it from her. Now in possession of this sacred relic, the Holy Spear, he stabbed Amfortas in the side. The wound would not heal. The wound could only be healed by an innocent fool a holy innocent fool, the one spoken of in the king's prophecy. Much later, there was a young man hunting in the woods whose arrow strikes a swan. The knights rebuke him for killing a holy animal. The young man, meaning no offense, is upset and breaks his bow in half. Gernemans questions him, but the young man is unable to answer any questions, even as to his name. But Kundry 
does know the boy's story. The boy's father was a knight who was killed in battle. So his mother forbade him from ever using a sword. One day the boy saw a group of knights pass near his home. He was so fascinated by the knights that he asked to go with them, and he did. And he left home and left his mother. His mother was so full of grief that she died. And Kundry knows this, and she tells Parsifal. The young boy is so distraught that to comfort him, Gernamach invites him to a ceremony that is about to begin. It is a ceremony in which they uncover the Holy Grail. As they walk, Parsifal feels like he's scarcely moving, and yet they're traveling far. Gernamach tells him, this is because they're traveling through a transformation. Gernamach tells him, in this realm, time becomes space. Zudram Vyodhir did cite. This transformation music is unusual and rather famous. I'll play a moment of it for you. ceremony that takes place in the Knights Hall. The Knights receive Holy Communion. The music for this is magnificent, full of reverence and holiness. And the Knights kneel before the Holy Grail and revere it with great devotion. Titurel believes that kneeling before the exposed Grail will help the Knights regain their strength. However, King Amfortas feels that this will only make matters worse. The knights begin the ceremony. The cloth covering the Holy Grail, the sacred cup, is removed. Emanating from it is a warm light that bathes the entire room in an amber glow. Parsifal, the young man, understands none of this. Thinking him a complete fool, they throw him out of the castle. The evil Klingzar knows the importance of this young man and he orders Kundry to seduce the young man. He knows he can heal the king and restore the knights. She resists as best she can, but she is in his power. So when Parsifal approaches Klingzor's castle, he's first met with a group of enchanted knights who fight him at every step of the way. But Parsifal is powerful and they're no match for him. Parsifal walks through the flower garden filled with traps and beautiful women. Kundry comes out to greet Parsifal. 
she's magically transformed into a stunning young woman. And calls him by his name, Parsifal. He's startled to hear this. He'd only been called that name by his mother. Kundri and Parsifal walk through the enchanted gardens and caress each other. This has the effect on Parsifal of awakening his heart and the great pain he feels for the loss of his mother. Kundri is compassionate, tells him to kiss her, and the pain will go away. But when their lips touch, he feels a greater pain. He feels the pain of Amfortas's wounds, and he thinks of Amfortas calling out in agony, and realizes that Kundri is the cause of this pain. He pushes her away. She pleads with him, says she's been cursed. She's been cursed because long ago, she laughed at Christ's crucifixion. She tells Parsifal that she's been living a double life under Klingzor's power for two longs. Parsifal turns and leaves immediately. Kundry rushes back to Klingzor. He grabs the Holy Spirit and makes his way to the gardens. He casts the spear at Parsifal's heart with all his might. But he is amazed and stunned when Parsifal reaches up and in midair catches the spear. Suddenly, Klingzor, the enchanted knights and ladies in the castle and the magic gardens, fade away. Before going on to the third act, the last act, in which there is the music called the Good Friday Spell, often played just as an orchestral piece, magnificent, the Good Friday Spell. I want to offer one more quote from Nietzsche that Brady includes. Wagner's last work is in this respect his greatest masterpiece. In the art of seduction, Parsifal will always retain its rank as a stroke of genius in seduction. I admire this work. I wish I had written it myself. Failing that, I understand it. Never was there a greater master of dim, heretic aromas. Never was there a man equally expert in all small infinities, all the trembles and his effusive, all the feminisms, from the idiot to con of happiness. I hope you catch the insult. Nietzsche is saying all of this trembling, effusive feminism and, and sensuousness is for happy idiots. Back to the story of the opera. Act three, many years have passed. Grunemans and Kundry are in the forest near the castle. They see a strange man covered in armor from head to toe approaching them. Grunemans greets him, gets no answer. The stranger walks up, removes his helmet and withdraws the spear. It's Parsifal. Parsifal tells them about his many arduous years spent trying to find their castle. He said he'd never revealed the spear or used it in any way, despite being in many battles. Gudemans tells him that King Infortas is dying. He's barely hanging on to life. He wants to proclaim Parsifal as the new king, for the reason that Infortas will not allow the uncovering of the grail. So many of the knights of the Grail are weak. Titril is dead and his funeral is about to take place. Bells are tolling in the distance. He's to be the new king. Parsifal baptizes Kundry and they walk to the castle. 
It is Good Friday. The knights bear Titurel's coffin with great ceremony into the hall. King Argenfortas will not remove the grail's cover. It begs one of the knights to kill him in order to end his misery. Parsifal enters the room, holds out the holy spear, it walks up to Amfortas. He taps the spear on Amfortas's side. Amfortas' wound disappears. The agonizing pain is gone. Even the guilt for failing the knighthood in his youth is gone. He is absolved. Parsifal climbs up to the Holy Grail and removes its cover. Golden light illumines everything. At that moment, Kundri collapses and dies. From her body, a white dove ascends and hovers above Parsifal. Parsifal will now lead the knights of the Holy Grail. And that's the end. Wagner had a very complex relationship with Catholicism, a matter of fact. His wife, Cosima, the daughter of Litzt, was a woman who had been married to a Catholic conductor, the greatest of his age, Hans von Bülow. She abandoned that marriage and married Wagner. She could not continue her Catholicism, so she converted to Lutheranism. Ricard and Cosima were flawed. They shared this sin. They remained married for the rest of their lives. She was much younger and she survived him and ran his theater, Bayreuth, producing his operas for decades after his death. Those who do her best said in her heart she had always remained a very devout Catholic. But what about Ricard? If nothing else, there is Parsifal as a testament to his devotion to Catholicism. You listen to it and deny it. It's there in the music and in the words. It's so powerfully there that the secular atheists of our day have to ridicule the opera, can't produce it without ridiculing it and being sarcastic about it. With this masterpiece, one of the greatest creations of the human race, it's beautiful with a Catholic beauty. They're embarrassed about it. What are they to do with this embarrassing beauty? But they're ridiculed. This is Chuck Coughlin on Bird Box Media. Bird Box Media programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.